Today, I'm bringing you part one in a two-part series on the psychology of relationships. Today is all about becoming attached, which applies to all of us as human beings. And next week, we're going to do part two, which is gender differences in social and emotional development. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Dr. Debbie, and I've been helping men, women, and couples grow together for more than 25 years. Now it's your turn to learn what I learned and taught as a couples counselor and university professor. You are the wise woman, and this is your personal development podcast packed with instant encouragement and practical tips, and men can learn about women too, because this is a safe place where women are valued and men are respected. We talk about biology, socialization, behavior, emotions, communication, and connection, because men and women are different. Always have been, always will be, and that's a very good thing. This is part one we're recording today, Becoming Attached. We're going to talk about what men won't say. And a therapist can't tell you, and you need to know it. This is important information. If you're here and you're interested in in relationships and how we become attached and how we get stuck, how some people get stuck in relationships and other people don't. I worked with uh, couples, men, women, and couples for 25 years in my private practice in Southern California. I actually closed that practice in August of 2021 so that I could move on and invest my time in teaching couples how to do better relationships. I actually spent a fair amount of time teaching other counselors as well as pastors and uh, mentor couples how to work with couples It was really a fun time. But what I really want to do now at this stage is teach you so that you know uh, what you need to know to have a better relationship. Let me just share with you just a little bit about my academic background. So I did my undergrad at Mid-American Nazarene University. That's actually located in a suburb of Kansas City on the Kansas side of the line. Um, For those of you that wonder which side of the line it's on. It's actually in Olathe, Kansas. I did my undergrad there. I was also a teaching assistant. And during my uh, pre-doctoral internship, I went back and taught a course on adult development and aging. I did my graduate work at Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University. I earned two degrees there, Master of Arts and Doctor of Psychology. And I also taught some courses there. And then my last academic thing I'm going to share with you is about Azusa Pacific University. Um, I actually taught a bunch of courses there. And altogether, I taught for eight years at the university level. And I loved it. You know, every therapist has a bunch of education behind what they do. And it's always puzzled me that we never share that with clients in a clinical practice. And that's because we're taught that we can't do that, that we somehow need to apply everything that we've learned, but we would never talk about it explicitly. And I say never, there are probably some therapists like me who do want to do some education along the way. However, the vast majority of them are, of therapists that is, are carrying around in their minds a model of development, a model of health, and they are using a variety of techniques or interventions 
to get the client to recognize this kind of hidden secret that they're not talking about explicitly. And that always bugged me. It it was interesting. I did my um, pre-doctoral internship at the University of Kansas Counseling and Psychological Services. And while I was there, they did something that was totally unthinkable in my graduate program. We actually shared test results with our clients. We'd show them the printout. We'd talk about what it meant. And they used the assessment as a therapeutic tool. Whereas in my, in my graduate work, what we were taught is that that is for the therapist, that you don't want to show that to the client because they wouldn't understand it. So it was, it was kind of an interesting uh, switch for me to go from, from being in classes and doing practicum placements and then being in an internship where we were encouraged to be more open with our clients. So I really like that model. It fits well with what what I like to do, um, it really fits well with my personality. I love to teach. One of the things that every therapist learns in school is about personality development. We talk about everybody, every class starts with Sigmund Freud. And his idea of personality development was based on psychosexual stages. And if you want to look that up, you can. I'm not going to teach you about that today. Um, But that's one way of looking at how personalities develop. Psychosocial stages was another model that was proposed by Eric Erickson. And it's interesting because there are actually eight different stages of psychosocial development. And in those eight stages, the first four really are stages where someone else has more control. And the last four stages are more the person is now becoming themselves it's interesting. Erickson was big on identity. Um, so very fascinating stuff. You can also research psychosocial stages uh, with Eric Erickson. There are also trait theories. And one of the most popular trait theories is the big five personality traits. The big five personality traits are extroversion, agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. Really fascinating stuff. Uh, If you are looking at that, trade theories basically says that you're born with certain personality traits and they don't change over time. They're pretty much fixed. They are yours at birth. Another way of looking at trait theories is the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And this is really popular. I used it when I was at the University of Kansas as an intern Um, We used it a lot in career development, career counseling, helping uh, freshmen figure out where they wanted to be. A fascinating instrument to use and really very readily available to people. There's several, if you look at at, uh, Myers-Briggs online, you can find something like this. This is one of the most useful free instruments that I have found and you can access it two at 16personalities.com will give you a complete printout if you decide to take it um, that tells you a lot about yourself. It's really kind of interesting how accurate this could be. Now, I've taken and given lots and lots of personality tests in my lifetime, and this one really nailed it for me. I was quite surprised. Uh, If you've been following me for a while, 
you know, and you start studying the 16 personalities, maybe you can figure out what personality type you think that I am. That would be an interesting, fun thing to do. Maybe I should have a contest, um, but we'll think about that. Anyway, 16personalities.com. It's really cool to, especially with couples, for you each to take it because then you can compare and it can explain a lot of reasons why you look at life in a very different way. However, what's most relevant to our discussion today and the topic of this becoming attached is attachment theory. It's more than just making sure our physical needs are taken care of. The emphasis here is on emotional connection. Every human being, without exception, that means men and women alike, every human being needs someone who is available and responsive to their needs. We're born with an attachment system already in place. Now, this is not something that you can find in any kind of anatomy and physiology graph or chart or book or anything like that, because it's an emotional system. It's a survival system. It's not an actual physical body system, although it does certainly activate many of our bodily systems when we're in distress, right? So what we need as infants is not really a lot different than what we need as adults, but we need to have had a really good experience with a parent or a caregiver as children in order for us to be able to grow into a healthy adult. Now that kind of goes without saying, I'm sure that you understand what I mean by that. However, what I don't want you to think is that someone has to be always and forever available and responsive to you. In fact, you want to have someone who's just good enough. However, there are a lot of people whose families have gone through some sort of a, a trauma or a personal crisis, a family crisis, or maybe a parent who was alcoholic or a, a parent who worked too much and there wasn't sufficient availability and responsiveness to the child. So you can see that this security of attachment is actually going to be um, on a continuum from healthy attachment to an insecure attachment. And that's what we're going to talk about. So when we say someone has been consistently available and responsive to your emotional needs, that means that your anger and your fear and your sadness and your hurt will naturally begin to dissipate when you make contact with someone who cares about you. Now, again, they don't have to do it 100% of the time. Nobody can pull that off, right? But we have to have been soothed by somebody else enough times that we can actually draw on those memories and the feelings associated with them in order to be able to develop what psychologists call a secure emotional attachment. Based on these emotional memories that you have from childhood, you have developed a template for your relationships, including romantic relationships, that includes basic beliefs that are essential for secure emotional attachment. Now, hopefully those basic beliefs are positive ones. They are, I am lovable and I can depend on others to be loving towards me and to help meet my needs. And when we don't have adequate emotional connection, our attachment system will instantly begin to malfunction. 
that's where we get into defensiveness and denial of a, there even being a problem is very self-protective. Um, I don't need to be afraid because nothing's happening. Denial, anger, anxiety, avoidance. We try to gain a sense of control over ourselves and over the other people. Attachment is about your emotional connection. You need someone who's available and someone who's responsive. Your current attachment system can be identified by evaluating the opposite characteristics of available and responsive. That is avoidance, which is a tendency to not be available. And anxiety is a tendency to react rather than respond. Okay, so let's look at a chart here. So we've got avoidance on the bottom, means they're unavailable. And we've got low range to high range. Then we've got anxiety, which is the non-responsive. And that may seem like it. I'm talking about responsive versus reactive. And again, we have low to high. So someone who is low on avoidance and low on anxiety is going to develop a secure attachment style. That is, that person will still experience some anxiety because that's part of life, but it's going to be at much lower levels than someone who is insecurely attached. When a securely attached person is worried or concerned about something, either inside or outside of the relationship, they're going to seek out their partners to help them talk things through. After their talk, they feel less worried. If that sounds like you, you're emotionally secure. If you are low on anxiety and high on avoidance, you would develop a detached style. Now, detached is also known as dismissing. Um, that's how I refer to it in my first book, was as the dismissing style. A detached person sees little, if any, value in emotional intimacy, and so they become counterdependent in relationships. They will often choose independence and autonomy over relational interdependence. In other words, the damage has been done and they simply aren't interested in close relationships. They have been able to disconnect themselves sufficiently from their emotions and they won't even bother with it. In fact, a detached person is not going to seek out counseling, is not going to be looking up stuff about relationships on the internet, is not going to be willing to talk to a partner not because they're afraid, but just because they're so incredibly detached from everything. Very, very emotionally disconnected. And it's fine with that. The next type that we're going to talk about is someone who is high in anxiety and um, low in avoidance. So they're going to feel anxious, but they're going to tend to seek out someone to help them with that anxiety. Now, when they're overly focused, I in the book, again, I refer to this as the preoccupied style. One who is focused worries about relationship. Almost constantly, actually. They have difficulty loving, trusting, and respecting a mate. Their anxiety, when they're in that uh, mode of seeking someone, remember they're low on avoidance, they're high on anxiety. And so what they're doing is they're coming across to their mate as angry, critical, demanding, and controlling, even dominating. Not the best 
method for developing a relationship. Okay, now our next style, our last style is number four, is the fearful person. And what I refer to in the book is the fearful avoidant. This person is high on anxiety, but they're also high in avoidance. So that means they're going to be kind of freaking out about stuff, but they don't want anybody to know. And they don't want anybody to know for a couple of different reasons, but mainly because they're afraid of their own vulnerability. They expect that they will be hurt. They believe they don't deserve to be treated well. And although they deeply desire a relationship with someone, they're not likely to take the risk because they're so terrified of looking bad, feeling rejected, or being criticized. So, who do you think will be most likely to get stuck in a negative cycle in a relationship? So negative cycle is one that spirals in, in terms of intensity of disagreements, it spirals upward. Uh, in terms of connectedness, it spirals downward. So negative cycle is just a spiral that just continues to build. Things don't get resolved. They just go round and round and round like a merry-go-round. So who do you think would be? Well, let's see. It's probably not going to be the secure person because the secure person doesn't have an overwhelming amount of anxiety. And when they do feel a little anxious, they're going to tend to move towards someone to try to talk things through. So it's not going to be the secure person. So let's see, the detached person. Well, they are low on anxiety and anxiety is a very motivating factor to get us to move. But they're so high on avoidance that they're not going to get engaged in, in seeking out someone to help them. And this person partnered with one of the other styles may show up in counseling because the partner wants it, but they don't really care about it. So probably we're going to say no for the detached. It really depends on who their partner is. So that leaves us with a focused and the fearful. Does that seem like that could be part of a negative cycle? Well, let's take a look at that. The focused person feels anxiety. Their partner is fearful. The focused person reaches out to the fearful person. The fearful person wants to avoid because they're very high on avoidance. And so they avoid their partner, which goes back and makes the other partner even more anxious because they perceive they're alone in the situation. This is a very common negative cycle. Now, I kind of portrayed this as beginning with the focused person being anxious, but it actually could begin with a fearful person being anxious and avoiding, and their avoidance now hurts the person who is their partner because they need somebody to be there for them. So they trigger each other and it goes round and round in circles. And this is just one of the negative cycle patterns. It can switch. It can be much more complex than this, but this helps you understand how those personalities, those attachment styles begin to affect one another. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks for listening to this part of the series. You're welcome to watch it as many times as you want. And if you have any questions, be sure and reach out and ask me. Next time, we're going to cover part two, which is gender differences in social and emotional development. That'll be fun. I'll see you then. Take care.
Thank you for listening to this episode of A Wise Woman's Guide to Men and Marriage. What did you think? Did the information raise more questions? Do you want to learn more? Head over to wisewomansguide.com for show notes and links to the resources mentioned in this episode. And if you're looking for other wise women to bounce around ideas and ask questions, be sure to join my exclusive community for women on Facebook. The link is waiting for you at awisewomansguide.com.